I don't know if you've ever been to Disney World or Disneyland, but there is, there's actually something that you will never see at Disney World or Disneyland. It is, it is a place that you can almost see anything and everything. It is all your dreams and desires as they come true, except for one particular thing. I had the privilege of knowing a Tinkerbell and a Cinderella in college who worked there for a couple of summers. And the one thing that you will never see uh, at Disneyland and Disney World is any of the princesses pointing at anything. They'll guide you with their hands. They'll, they'll point you with maybe their shoulders, but they'll never, they'll never point at anything because wicked stepmothers and evil people in all Disney stories point at people. Now, our story this morning about what God will now do in a sinful world is something that is a dramatic twist in separation from anything around it. The story of the Bible begins with an expansive, illustrative view of the glory of all of God's handiwork. It begins with God and His overwhelming power, beauty and glory, just overwhelming everything that He's made. He's made everything from nothing. And then the Bible zooms in quite a bit, where you and I are shown that God made a particular thing more glorious than anything else in creation. He made a man, and then from the man, He made a woman, and they were set up to rule and to reign and to find pleasure throughout all of the earth. They were given everything as it was glorious, but then, when tempted by an evil beast, man fell into sin. And there, He not only sinned generally, but He sinned particularly against a holy God. And without being too dramatic, here we see immediately in Genesis 3, everything, quite literally everything, changes. They were set up to rule and everything took a dark turn. The world is the way that you and I see it is because of this moment in time. You and I look around and recognize that this isn't the glorious creation that was set up in Genesis 1 and 2. You and I look around and realize that even relationships And identities are dramatically, intensely, almost bound up and then ripped apart where once everything used to be awesome, now it is tainted by what the Bible calls as sin and despair. And this is the dramatic first twist in this new world where drama unfolds itself as Adam and Eve feel incomplete for the first time. They feel what's called shame. They feel wrong. And so they rush to hide themselves from what's to come, where, where God approaches them in the garden, and they run and hide. And then still God meets them and questions them. And then even in verse 11, it says, who told you that you were naked? Who told you that you were ashamed? Who told you that you had done wrong? But our text today isn't about the feelings that Adam and Eve had over the shame of their sin. Our text today is about the beginning of a battle that they knew nothing about in its smallest part, that, but we see this battle royale expanding itself all the way from Genesis 3 to the very end of the Scriptures. Our text today is about the beginning of a, of a new battle because for the first time in revealed history, the Lord God who commanded the mountains and the seas to exist The same Lord God who separated light from darkness, the same God who breathed life into man, into woman, now turns and speaks to Satan and points his finger at wickedness. This will not only be the first time he'll approach Satan, but this is the first standoff 
in human history. This is the first time where everything will be put on the table and sides will be drawn. It's, it's here where you see God revealing himself as not only the creator, but as a warrior, a God who will show himself and prove himself to be against everything that is evil and wrong. Now, our time today in God's word will be entirely in verse 15 of chapter 3. And if you're here today and you're not used to the Bible, or if you're not used to Christianity, nor used to maybe the church, you should know that we believe that nothing existed before God. He was the beginning, and He is the Alpha, as it's called. And you should know that nothing not only existed before Him, but also that He holds and sustains everything together by His mighty hand. He is the creator and also sustainer of everything, and it is not only by His power, but He does all of this for his own glory. He's so glorious that this is for his own glory. And it's here we're told from Scripture that he created man by his own power, for his own glory, but he created man to then rule over everything that he had man. It's like he he made man, placed him in the garden, and said, all right, go and have fun. Go and have fun with with all that I've given you, with the the boundaries that I've drawn to protect you. It's all yours. Taste and enjoy. See and understand. But it wasn't Too soon thereafter, that man fell to a temptation and took what was not his, wanting to rule outside of God's provision and fell into sin toward the darkness of Satan. You remember, through just a whisper or a subtle switch of one word that caused everything to turn out of control. And so our text this morning serves as the first encounter that God has in our eyes toward evil. And we see here that he has plans to deal with Satan. He, he has plans to deal with evil. He has plans to work through the two who sinned against him in order to conquer the one that messed everything up in their midst. Now, he will, and we'll, we will next week, Lord willing, get into what he has to say to man and to woman. But in the way that they came into the garden, he deals with them first. And I think there are a couple of things that that really seep to the top or climb to the top of what this text is about. There are three points. You you might have an outline on one of the bulletins that you would have been provided in coming in here. And the, the first thing that we really need to understand before we get into some of the words that God says to Satan is we need to understand that the totality or the problem of sin, the problem of sin, evil, sin, Satan, you recognize this as evil or wickedness. And you might even recognize that it is all around us. It it is all around people that you are a part of. It is all around the world. It would not take you much time to recognize that if everything was good, what I'm looking at today has nothing to do with that goodness. Everything seems to be tainted by this sinfulness. And Satan is very present in the midst of the terror that that wrecks havoc on the world. And so here we see within the, the problem of sin showing up, there is something magnificent where God takes Satan on directly. He is not being passive with his confrontation of Satan. He is is not speaking at Adam and Eve and hoping that Satan will understand how how powerful and and how much he will conquer Satan's midst. It, It looks like he'd be pointing at him, accusing him, getting up in his face and promising Satan's utter defeat. And he has good reason to be angry at this awfulness of evil. God has a perfect reason for being angry at Satan, because Satan we see not only in this case through the temptation, but all the way through the rest of Scripture, we see that Satan is incredibly dishonest. Uh, 
He is incredibly devious. He is cunning. And through a variety of facades, he, he seeks to influence people for his very own glory. And his sole desire is to defame God as much as possible. He hates God in such a way that the way that he desires to go after God is to bring not only in his mind that the glory of God down, which ironically is impossible, but if he also wants to seek other agents to then attack at that glory of God. Now, God's word says that he is evil. Satan who here who we're dealing with is evil. Matthew 13 says the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. And he's also devious in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He's a slanderer and deceives people. It says in 2 Timothy, imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And he, and he works in fake miracles in order to bring people's attention to himself. In Matthew 24, it says, for false Christs and false prophets working on behalf of Satan will arise and perform great signs and wonders in order to, it says there, lead astray the elect. And through this, he appoints false prophets. He, he brings in almost other agents to his army in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where it says, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Friends, you need to understand that, that there is a problem of evil. It is bad, but, but there is a force behind it that is wanting to almost pour gasoline on a fire to where evil becomes even worse. Satan here is portrayed as a hunter aiming to destroy. He didn't accidentally come across Adam and Eve in the garden. He sought them out. He went for them. He knew their language. He knew their desire. He knew what was said to them. And he just wanted to move the needle a little bit to where the whole world falls apart. Satan is the enemy of God who hates everything in his path. He's described as the devil, a dragon, a serpent, and even the prince of the world. And you might be tempted to think right there, isolating yourself from this text and go, man, all that's pretty bad. That guy's not very good. Evil out there is not very good. I'm glad it's not in my midst. The irony here in our text is we see ourselves separate from Satan's work or desire. It is like people practicing something far away, like maybe some of you are playing football right now or you're playing football this fall. I have nothing to do with you playing football. I'm not a part of it. I don't sweat like you do. I don't get anxious like you do. I don't get hurt like you do. I'm separate from it. And I think that's how a lot of us think about Satan. It's just something that other people partake in over there. You know, you, you dance the wrong way and there's Satan in your house. You, you do something mystical and all of a sudden he appears. You, you do a magic trick and, and poof, there he comes from a bag. But no, we need to recognize that we are, we are not far from Satan's grab, and we are not far from his desire. Yes, we do things here and there that are bad, but given enough circumstances, you and I are convinced that we'll change, or we'll adapt, or at our root, we're actually good people. I'm a good person. I wouldn't mess with that. I might fall into temptation, but, you know, I'm a good guy. I wonder if you've ever seen someone give a perfect impression of someone else. I'm hilariously bad at doing impressions of other people. Like, I try to do voices like other people, and it's, it's so comical and so poorly. But we all know of people who can do a great impression of other people. And, and whenever they do that, in many ways, it's, it's like they really know that person. You think of they can impersonate someone in a movie or in a joke or even in an analogy. It's like they know that person where knowing someone is the idea that you embrace them in such a way that, 
that that person almost becomes very part of you. And we often take on personalities of people around us uh, when we really get to know them. We might be a part of a friend group, and all of a sudden we might start dressing like other people in our friend group, or maybe they dress like us, or we talk like other people. You know, all you parents, you might hear your kids come from, from school and say, where did you learn that? Well, they're morphing into who they're placed around, right? Or we might even take on ideas that'll become our own philosophy or our own practice culture. And when we, when we know something, it's like, it, it's like it wraps itself around us and almost merges with us. But beyond imitation, you and I might imitate other people, there are things which are just naturally inherited from others, right? So, so separate, you might grow to be like other people, but then there are other cases where you are who you are because you've inherited them from others, right? Maybe, maybe you have the posture like your dad or the scowl like your mom. Or maybe, maybe you freak out or get anxious or excited or angry like someone in your family, When Adam and Eve desired to know good and evil and eating the forbidden tree, they, they didn't know evil in an observational way. It's not like they ate from the tree and then they started intimidating evil all around them. But, but in many ways, it, it really became part of them. Evil now overtook them. They were infected, if you will, like a disease infects someone, where it become a part of them. And so you and I look back toward the garden in Genesis 3, and we go, okay, everything is the way it is here because we've inherited what became of them there. When we approach this passage, Genesis chapter 3, we recognize it as an awful thing. We recognize it as sin creeping into the world, where a problem is exposed here that must be dealt with, where there is a separation of everything that was good and now bad. And we recognize that here, through man's sin, he is discovered and he hides And the problem is exposed, and the problem of sin is revealed where it separates, but then we see actually God in His graciousness showing up, drawing His own line in the sand, and speaking to the problem, to evil, to sin, where He speaks directly to Satan and says, in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. So we see here that there is a problem of sin, but then just from the verse, we see that there is a There is a promise here, secondly. We see here that there is a promise of strife or of enmity. Friends, you need to recognize that Satan is not just out there, but Satan is after you. He's a hunter who cannot bring down the glory of God on his own, so he turns to devour everything that bears God's image. He's not interested in bringing down mountains or creatures of the field. He wants to devour your soul. Remember, he, he went into, it looks like he went into the serpent, overtook the certain serpent's personality, and then went after the image bearer of God. He didn't mess with the serpent. We would imagine the serpent was just fine after that, right? But then he went after image bearers, and he sought to tear them apart from the inside out. He's not interested in bringing down things that we might think are falling apart around us. He's, he's aiming to bring down you. Now, now, I need to take a moment here and say, the Bible is not a book about telling us how we ought to live in order to become or have a better life. It's not like a, it's not like a captured group of letters from a TED Talk or even financial advice or even marital advice. It, it has all of that in it, but it is, it, is a, it is a set of principles that demonstrate to us who God is. More than anything, the Bible announces 
what God has done and what God is continually doing. We see the, the old parts, right, as history, how God has made promises. And then the, the new part, you might call it the New Testament, that, that shows us the promises that God has kept. And we see what God has done through this overall view of world history, where we recognize that, okay, there is a promise of strife here, and we can see it unfolding throughout the rest of the Scriptures. Now, there are all kinds of history that you and I can unfold itself, or you and I can participate in. There's history of war. Some of you may have a lot of books about war in your house. There are histories about culture. Maybe you've, maybe you've tried to discover how your family came from this area or that area. There's, there's cultural historical developments that you and I try to understand, or there's history of political powers. It seems like two years after any president in American history, two years after they're no longer president, there are all these books that try to capture the political history of all around them. Or there are even history of histories. How do, we, how do we understand the development of history all around us? But in our context, in the context of this passage, we acknowledge that all of that, we can see a constant message. You and I, from the very beginning, can see a constant message or a constant history being unfolded and traced through the story of the Bible. There is, a, there is a common theme that is being chased after or traced or understood as the Bible unfolds. You may think that the Bible is just two major sections or 66 books, or you go to this book if you need advice, you go to this book if you need marriage, you, you go to this book if you don't want to be scared about the end times, you go to this book if you just really want to learn a lot about you know, Middle Eastern history or how Jewish development came about, but you need to recognize that the Bible is one book, and it has a message, and it is about a thing, and that thing is God overwhelming evil with His own glory. When we think about the Bible as a whole, we see history like this. I will put enmity between the woman and you, and between your offspring and her offspring. It's a biblical history that begins and then unfolds for the rest of our history. This is, this is also not only the history of the Bible, this is the history of your own soul. Enmity between you and Satan, between your offspring and Satan's offspring. It is a glorious and true overarching history, and it's a history of God starting a promise, a promise of hostility, raising up, you think of this, raising up a seed that is going to fight another seed, this terrible tyrant almost like portrayed as the offspring of the serpent will battle against the offspring of the woman or mankind. He's going to diminish him, the seed of the serpent, and deliver his people for his own glory. Now, you and I recognize history and maybe even biblical history, and we recognize that there are things that just rise and fall here and there. It's the same repeated history over and over again. We see that cultures rise and fall. Babylon was once great. Rome was once great. Persia was once great, England, on and on we can go, tracing the developments of rising and falling through history. But the purpose that we see through all of this is that there is a promise of hostility between God and between evil. The Bible is nothing but the outworking of the battle between God and evil. That's our message, how God is aiming to and does destroy evil and defeats evil, and he will ultimately unravel Satan's horrifying work. Notice that God puts this promise right in the devil's face. He almost says, here's the plan of the rest of your life and the rest of everyone else's. Look at the verse. Look at verse 15. How does God seek to execute his plan of battling against evil? He says, he shall bruise your head 
but you shall bruise his heel. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The absolute certainty in God's voice against Satan in this moment. Now, what does that mean? So if this is history, what has happened since? What does it look like for a head to be bruised and a heel to be bruised? How, how is this setting up a history for you and I to understand everything else? This is where you embark on the following or following the story all the way through the Scriptures. One of the greatest things you can do, friend, to understand who God is and even your placement in God's will is to just read the Bible from beginning to end understanding that you are a part of this history being unfolded. And you're going you're gonna to go, I will go to the Psalms, I will go to the Proverbs, I'm going to miss a lot of this stuff, and then I'm going to get to the good juicy parts in the gospel and even the hammer of the apostolic letters. And I want you to know that you are missing so much of God's glorious unfolding of history against evil. Think of this. There are two lines There are two seeds in conflict from the very beginning, and this message is smashing its way through the Old Testament, and it begins at once. God promises the seed of the woman will be against the seed of the man, and in one more chapter later, we see descendants of Adam and Eve, Abel and Cain. Cain, for us, the representative of Satan, and Abel, the representative of the woman, where man, full of hate and murder in his heart, murders his own brother. Abel, the seed of the woman raised by God. Abel here was struck down in a murder and delivered. A deliverer through this woman is still being needed. What we see again and again as the Bible unfolds is that there are little lights that seem to pop up and glimmer. And you might think, is this the seed of the woman that will conquer the seed of the serpent? Is this the seed of the woman? Is it finally this one? Is it finally this one? And we see again and again that those who seem to be brought up fall short. We see it again in Noah later on in the book of Genesis. And Noah was against the rest of the world, righteous. He was called against evil. That was going to have havoc rake down on him. Noah and his family, just eight people against the rest of the world. And the whole world was destroyed and these eight were saved. A same conflict, a same continuation on, a seed of the woman. Those people who ridiculed Noah, God raised up him. Yet he was persecuted by them, but remember that he fell too, even on the other side of the flood. And then we see, then we come to see the man whose name was Abram, where we see God called him out. God called out and revealed himself and said, through you, I'm going to bring a savior. From your offspring, I will populate my world and bring glory to myself, where from your offspring, there will be a conquering of the seed of the serpent, the seed of the woman. Now through Abram, known as Abraham to us. And out of his offspring comes the people of Israel, God's elect and special people who are called and tasked to carry on his own goodness. But the seed of the serpent continues to fight the seed of the woman. For the devil gets into the camp of God's people and he leads God's people into sin. Even though they're wandering and they lack nothing, he calls them into sin. There's a struggle continuing within the nation as well as the nations outside. This is nothing but another conflict of the seed of the woman against the seed of the serpent. History shows itself as God seemingly losing again and again. Every offspring that comes from the woman who God has blessed, every offspring that comes from these offsprings that God has raised up, it seems like they fall a little bit more in a little bit more dramatically. In fact, if you just look at the scriptures, it's why these books seem to get bigger where they just recount God's faithfulness in against, of, in against man's own sinfulness and separation. 
And it seems to us that if you're reading through the Bible, this isn't going very well. The enemy seems to be very triumphant. There are seeds that are promised. There are people that rise up, but even they fall like ones before them. The the children of Israel are almost gone. And there's nobody left to deliver. Poor Elijah even sits under a tree and says, am I the only one left? But here's the dilemma and the conflict. It goes on and people continually feel hopeless in their own lives. It it seems like the seed of the serpent will continually go against the seed of the woman. It seems like the seed of the serpent is supposed to be crushed by the seed of the woman, but why doesn't that ever happen? God sends them special messengers called prophets who basically say, hold on, keep pursuing the Lord, keep your face on Him, keep going, the Messiah will be delivered. They even start making different promises about what He'll look like and what He'll act like and the Messiah that will come. But, but amazingly in the Scriptures, there is 400 years of dead silence. In great hope, they had been waiting for decades and more than a millennium. They had been waiting in years past and He still never came. The seed of the woman seemed to never show up in order to conquer evil for 400 years. Imagine not hearing from your spouse for a day or a year or a lifetime or or 10 lifetimes. There was no word from God from between Malachi to the Gospels. 400 years of world history where God was silent towards his people. Imagine the desire of these people there. Imagine the temptation to call out, where is God? What about this promise that you gave us in the beginning? What about this promise that you gave us that you will bring us to fulfillment and joy, where the enemy seems to be powerful and terrible, where persecutions lay all around God's people? Even even Jerusalem was ransacked. God's special place was ransacked in this midst. No, No longer could statues or mighty walls remind people of God's goodness. All of it seemed to disappear, and you have to imagine in their own minds, even if you're reading the Scriptures through on your own, has evil won? What it, where is the seed of the woman? Has the seed of the serpent overcome God and His glory? The devil certainly seems triumphant in everywhere we turn. And surely the serpent has prevailed, but recognize what comes next. We read this in Galatians. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. In Galatians, we read those words, when the fullness of time had come, those words reviewing what we had seen and known from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that the Messiah did come. And He didn't just come like someone leading an army. He didn't just come to do amazing things, but He came as the true and better seed of the woman, where it says, intentionally, He was born of a virgin so as to not be tainted by the inherited sinfulness of man. He wasn't born of man, but he was born of a virgin, conceived by the Spirit of God. You you see in your own account of the Scriptures in in the beginning of Matthew and in the first couple of chapters of the book of Luke, where where the Bible is very careful about showing that, that the person of Jesus came and his lineage can be traced all the way back to the very beginning. It's an alarming thing as you see it, one portrayed bit by bit historically, but then the other one goes in reverse where you can say, this was no accident of the seed of the woman showing up. 
born of a virgin, not of man, born from a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit. You see in Matthew's gospel, the seed of the serpent trying to conquer and kill the seed of the woman, though he seems to fail. It's like another glimmer of hope. Maybe this is the seed that will finally prevail. So we see and we watch the Son of God, this seed, be tempted by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights, tempting him in the same way that Adam and Eve were tempted in the garden, tempting him in the same way that the people of Israel were tempted in the wilderness, tempting him in the same way that people who were rejecting all these prophets, the very word of the Lord was his, was his anchor in fighting against evil and despair. Remember the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. Was there ever any such hatred towards one man, almost demonic in their approach to the Son of God here? Or go on and read your four Gospels. Look at how they treat this Son of God who came to save, who worked miracles, who was always doing acts of kindness. Look at how they treated him. His own people didn't even receive him. They threw stones at him. They spat in his face. They all joined in the mighty chorus by shouting, away with him, crucify him. Look at all these people of God, you would say, aligning themselves with an evil force. What is it then if nothing but hostility between the seed of the woman and a continuation of the seed of the serpent? And here it is reaching in its fullest insanity. And when they did condemn him, when they did condemn Jesus, when they finally found him guilty in their own eyes, you you see him then hanging on a tree, hanging on a cross. And you, you have to in some way think back The tree which used to bear fruit in the garden now bears true evil as its outcome. Certainly the seed of the serpent has won yet again. This one seemed to be so great. This one, it says, never sinned, never had an impure thought, never did anything that was anything other than righteous, following his father's will in the exact way that Adam was called to follow the father's will in the garden. Certainly, the serpent has won. He got him again because there is the seed of the woman, and they've got him, nailed him, killed him, wasted him, and even buried him in a tomb with a gigantic cover on top of it, where laid atop it would have been a ring of the king. For the seed of the serpent has conquered and covered up everything that was man's hope. But you will go on to recognize, no, no, there was more to what was seen in the serpent's eyes happening here. What was really happening there, at least in our case, according to Colossians, is that he who was dying there was on the cross triumphing, actually over the principalities and powers of the world, condemning them to an open shame and actually conquering them by his own death. The seed of the woman did die and was buried, and it was on purpose. Satan and his demons surely thought that they sealed their victory by rolling the stone over the mouth of the grave and sealing it. But imagine, friend, remind yourself of what it could have been like in that midst. Imagine their horror and imagine their anguish as he emerged out from under the sins of death and was raised to life by the Father. Imagine their horror at the realization of the prophecies of the Old Testament are are fully being fulfilled at his conquering the grave like no one else before. This is the drama of salvation for us. This is the history according to what the Bible says. This This is the exposition and the fulfillment of the very words of Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He meaning the coming seed will bruise your head. And friends, that is, that is a nice way of saying he will curb check him. Even though you have bruised his heel, 
You've clipped maybe his ankle, but your skull is being crushed. It is a necessary and terrible fight where he, Christ, has his heel bruised, even though the head of the serpent is being crushed. Friends, if you're here and you're not a Christian, and if you don't believe in Christ, as we would say, for the forgiveness of your sins, if you're here and not a believer, you, you may see the story, a, a story of, you know, just give us the benefit of the doubt, a story of, of one seed fighting another seed. You may look at that and be like, that's an interesting way to tell a story. But it, another way to say it is the offspring, the one who would come from this woman will ultimately go and conquer the other enemy. We see this all the time, battle royale between families, battle royale between kingdoms, battle royale between personalities, and even, even their offspring have something against that other character or that other creature. And you may look at this and you may not see this. You may see it as some kind of weird thing fighting another thing. You may not see this, but you need to recognize that, that just because you don't believe it, just because you don't believe it doesn't make it any less part of your story too. You may see yourself as separate of what all is happening between this seed and that seed, but that doesn't mean that it is not separate from you. What God is doing in the garden is he draws a line you can think of in the sand, and he says that sides will forever be taken. You're either of the seed of the woman or you're of the seed of the serpent. And if you're not in Christ, friend, what the Bible says to you is that your allegiance isn't with Christ, but that your allegiance is actually with the serpent. If you don't believe in Jesus as your Savior, the, the Bible shows that you actually side with the seed of the serpent. And, and I would encourage you to be introspective for just a little bit. Maybe on your way home, maybe for the rest of the day. It, at my heart of heart, my heart of hearts, am I actually wrong or sinful? And if I'm sinful, am I just like the seed of the serpent? I think in all honesty, you would recognize that you are not of the seed of the woman. You'd recognize that you are not perfect. You are not sinless. You are not in your own despair. But here we see that there is victory over the devil, and it is not possible without this episode, without the bruising of Christ's heel. We, we recognize what happened to Christ at the cross is that he was very bruised. Uh, it, bruising doesn't even share the totality of what was done to him. He was killed. He was, he was truly killed. And you would imagine that the devil thought that he had killed him, but he had only bruised him. It's like the devil would have forgotten the promise of Eden. He thought he could control him, but he realizes that he can't even hope to contain him because his heel was bruised. It wasn't destroyed. But it's in this moment, the bruising of his heel, by this very death, by Jesus' very death, it would be his deliverance unto death by God where evil would be destroyed by his very life, conquering evil and despair. And not only was it through his deliverance unto death, but it's, it was before that, his own very perfection, that the Son of God has perfectly fulfilled everything that he needed to do in order to substitute himself for you in your own evilness. But by his perfect life, by his absolute death, it is like him going to the side of evil and taking you, delivering you, rescuing you, rescuing you to his own side. And he's able to do this by wrapping his righteousness around you so that you would have perfect standing before God. Jesus went to a cross, and there he was lifted up to die, a, a true mockery as, as all mockeries could bestow taking the one who was from heaven, placing him on a dead tree, mocking everything that was glorious and perfect in Genesis 1 and 2, 
And then who is now pointing the finger back at the devil in this moment? There upon the cross, the sins of everyone who would believe in Christ, he knew and consumed the very wrath of God for their own sins. It is notably called the the greatest exchange that has ever happened, where what we see at the cross by Jesus' own life and his own death is that the very worst of you is taken upon him, and the very best of him is now transferred, or theologically, you can write down this word, is imputed to you. It's not just wrapped around you to balm your wounds, but it's actually almost injecting or imputing his very righteousness to where you are made new, to where your broken heart is actually new, to where you see yourself as so far away from God and his glory, but now you can actually stand in boldness because in, before his throne because he has made all of his goodness now known to himself in you. And so you see this morning that there was a promise of hostility through the birth and the life of a woman's seed carrying itself through the history of the Bible, where Jesus was not only taken in perfection and crushed in totality, but he was then buried in a tomb, and on a third day, the power that was natural in him, the Son of God, God raised him from the dead, where he was walking out of that tomb victorious. This is the fulfillment of what was promised. In Genesis 3.15, yeah, you're going to bruise his heel, but he will bruise your head. And through this, finally, we see that there is a pledge. There is not only a promise here, there is not only a, prom- or a, a promise, but there is finally a pledge, a pledge of your own salvation. What does the seed of the woman say to those who are sided with the seed of the serpent? What is, it, what is the outcome of the seed of the woman who stands victorious from the, cru- from the tomb now say to all those who are seeds of the serpent? Amazingly, he says, if you come to me, If you lay down your sword, if you stop battling against my father, if you recognize that everything you are trying to do is not going to work, if you just come to me, I will not cast you out. I would imagine that none of us here have been a prisoner of war. I can't imagine anything like it, that the loneliness, the the fear, the physical anguish, the torment, the torture, but then imagine being rescued out from that, from the one who you saw as awful and evil, is now saying, come to my side. Lay down your sword. You've been fighting against the wrong thing. He said, if you come to me, I will not cast you out. Jesus says, come unto me, you broken people, and I will give you rest. Take my life and learn of me, for you will find rest for your souls. He says, for my burden is easy. My chain is light. You look at the world around you. You look at your own soul inside of you, and you recognize that you are carrying a weight The scriptures say it is a weight of sin and anguish, and he says, take it off and put on mine and enjoy the freedom that comes from that. And I know it's hard for some of you and for a lot of us to to believe that and understand that, but what he says is if if you almost point your face to him, point your face away from evil, if you repent from evil and turn toward him, he is saying, my burden is easy, my chain It is light. Let me lead you to the fount that you have been running away from for so long. Friend, Christ here has delivered a crushing blow against the devil from which the devil will never recover. But in the end, but the end is not here in its fullness. The devil continually, uh, though received a mortal wound and all that look to Christ can enjoy the freedom from this wound, the, the devil is still wrecking havoc in the world around him. 
Even though we are rescued and redeemed through Christ's actions, we recognize that, that Satan still hates you. Satan still hunts you, even though you are in Christ. But there will be a time when the seed of the woman, meaning Jesus, there will be a time when the seed of the woman, our Lord Christ, who is ruling and reigning in the heavens right now, there will be a time where he will come back and he will finally cast out all of his enemies and Satan will be one of them. You might think of hell as a place where Satan is just tormenting people who deserve to go there. You need to recognize that in the pit of hell, Satan will be there as well, absorbing all of the wrath that he deserves. Satan and all who belong to him will be cast into the lake of fire. It says in Revelation 20, the devil who has deceived them was thrown. So this is a, this is a promise of what happens. This is an image. The book of Revelation is a promise of things that will happen. The devil who has deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. There will be a day when you think of the evil that showed up in Genesis 3 and has been wrecking havoc on everyone and you, there will be a time where he will reap what he has sown. But the the pointing question for you is to recognize which, which side of the line are you on? Are you in your heart warring against God and his glory? Yes, there will be a time where Satan and his evilness, this tyrant, will lay smashed under the bruised heel of the reigning Christ. Evil and all of its friends will be burned out of God's glory. There will be a, a new heavens and a new earth and wherein we will reside in righteousness and Satan will finally be put into true darkness for all eternity and Jesus will reign wherever the sun shines, it says. But friends, recognizing that the Christian message is not without your story involved in it by nature. In our inheritance, we belong to the devil. That's why the world is living as it is, because we belong to him in our natural state. And that's why the world laughs at the gospel and ridicules the speech of the blood of Christ. But the Christian message calls you to believe that God sent his own son into the world to deliver you and rescue you from yourself in your sins and from the devil in his condemnation and temptation. We need to recognize that, that there is a multi, multiplication of things that is happening when Jesus saves us from our sins. He is saving us from the, the nature of our heart and making it new, but also he is saving us from the boundary of all that condemns and is tempted to condemn. In Christ, the, the devil can no longer touch you. The whole world, and John's letter says, that the evil one touches us not. And so we recognize in this case, just this small word, we recognize how big of a battle is actually being promised here. Too often, we want to jump to the pain in verse 17, and we'll get into that next week where it says, because if you listen to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I come in, you will not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat it of all the days of your life. We jump often to the story of what we inherit in our own work, but we need to understand the fullness of the story of all the work that is done for us. The Christian here, be reminded that your God, who mercifully and graciously blotted out the sins of your own taking, was done by the crushing of his son's heel. It was done by the crushing of his son's life. And there are a lot of ways to look at Genesis chapter 315. We've just spent, I don't know, 40 minutes. I've spent 40 minutes just 
hovering around it again and again, you recognize that there is a battle between you and evil. And that's because you're actually naturally a part of evil. But God in His grace actually sent His Son at the right time, born of a, wo- born of a woman, not born under the curse of man, in order to have his heel crushed in such a way that it crushes the head of the serpent. In Genesis 3.15, God spoke. He directed his aim at Satan with a word, and it was a pledge. It was a promise which unveiled itself over time where a sacrifice for Adam's sin and, friend, your sin would come from heaven and will give us everything again. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth that we have from your word. We thank you for the goodness and the sweetness that you promised your people from the very beginning. We, we thank you for, for the righteous anger that you took and take and will take against evil. And Lord, we thank you that you have protected us from it. Our God, we ask that you would shape us in the likeness of your Son, recognizing that by his suffering we are made new. By his love, we were made whole. We pray this in thankfulness because of you and him. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.